The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. a joy to be together as God's people tonight. Christmas Eve, maybe it seems like it's here in a flash, or maybe it seems like we've been waiting for years just for this Christmas Eve to arrive. As I thought about my own memories of Christmas in my life, and as I think about my own celebration of Christmas, Christmas Eve has always held a, a special place probably one of the things that I look forward to most about the Christmas season. And I wonder if we could just pause for a minute and consider what makes Christmas Eve so unique. If you think about it, you've already enjoyed, or maybe a better word is endured, Christmas music for 30, 40, maybe 50 days. I think I heard my first Christmas carol the day after Halloween uh, this year. You've heard it on the radio, you've heard it in stores, you've heard it on your playlists, you've probably heard it stuck in your head. You've baked and eaten more cookies in more varieties than you had anticipated or planned. You've shopped, wrapped, stuffed, shipped gifts and stockings to be ready for tomorrow. Or on the younger end, you've, you've sung Christmas songs in school concerts, you've played them on your instruments, you've made Christmas lists You've watched Amazon packages show up on the front porch and wondered, is is that for me? It's kind of small. I hope that's for my brother. I hope the bigger one's for me. And we've wondered how it can take Christmas so long to get here. We're filled right now, perhaps with a mixture of exhaustion for the season leading up to Christmas with the anticipation of tomorrow morning. And there, in the midst of all this, comes Christmas Eve. It's a time when we still think it's worth pausing, suspended in this brief moment between preparation and celebration, to ask, what's this all for? Eugene Peterson is a Christian pastor and writer, and he asks, says, if in the general festive round of singing and decorating, of giving and receiving, cooking meals, family gatherings, we ask, what's behind all this? And what keeps Christmas happening all the world over, year after year, among all classes of people? The answer is simply a birth. Now, we know that the birth of a baby is usually a big deal. I've joked that in my family, you don't actually have to hear any of the details of a conversation to know that someone's going to have a baby. You can tell just by the tone of the screams and the chatter that goes on when when it's announced. And of course, then there's baby showers and there's baby gifts. There's the excitement of the birth itself that sets off cards and flowers and meal trains. But usually by about month two after a baby's born, right about the time that for the parents, genuine exhaustion is actually setting in, everyone else starts to forget about the birth, or at least to, to move on. And most of the people who are so excited about that birth 
don't really remember or celebrate that birthday anymore. But not the birth we're celebrating at Christmas. There was something different about this birth. Something about this birth that set off an ongoing worldwide joy and celebration that has continued for 2,000 years. Why? What was different about this birth? Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Micah. That's a very small little book in the Old Testament, but if you want to use one of the Bibles that's found in the pew, you'll find it on page 778 and 779. And we'll read Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Here is a read from God's Word to us. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Let's pray. God, these are your words that you've given to us. How we thank you that you have told us that your birth of your son was coming and that it happened and that we can put our faith in this Jesus. Would you speak to us again through your word tonight? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is a story jumping into the Old Testament and perhaps it's worth a little reminder of the context of these verses. You may remember that Israel was actually divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which still went by the name Israel, which was larger, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And the prophet Micah was speaking to that smaller southern kingdom, Judah. And at the time of this book, things were going fantastic in Judah. It was a time of economic prosperity. The economy was booming. The nation was fairly secure. But as often happens at times like these, injustice was also rampant in Judah. And Micah, in the chapters leading up to this passage, had denounced the leaders of Judah for oppressing the poor. He denounced the prophets of Judah for telling falsehoods and for encouraging the nation of Israel to continue in their sin. And he's promised that judgment is coming. In fact, he said just a few verses before, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. When our passage begins, you notice it right in verse 1, Micah prophesies that Judah better get ready to muster their troops because Jerusalem is going to come under siege. Its king is going to suffer humiliation or be struck on the cheek, as Micah puts it. And he assures Judah in verse 3 that God's people will be defeated and given up to their enemies. That's what's coming. Not a very hopeful Christmas passage or message 
we might think. But, look at verse 2. Verse 2 begins with, but. Despite Israel's sins and despite the desolation and punishment that's coming against them, God is not abandoning them forever. Though Israel will be given up for a time, according to verse 3, there is still hope. And that hope is going to arrive, you see it in verse 3, with a birth. That hope will arrive when she who is in labor has given birth. I want you to notice with me here two things. First, the details of this birth in verses 2 and 3, and then the hope that comes with this birth in verses 4 and 5. So let's start with the details of this birth in verses 2 and 3. We learn right off in verse 2 that this birth is going to be insignificant and unnoticed by almost everyone in the nation of Israel because it's going to happen in a tiny overlooked village called Bethlehem. Now, when we think of Bethlehem, we think of one of the most famous cities on earth. Surely, if there's any foreign city most people will have heard of, it's Bethlehem. People take pilgrimages to visit Bethlehem. But before this birth, Bethlehem was small and unimportant. In fact, we're told in the book of Joshua that the tribe of Judah inherited a territory that was probably about twice the size of Lancaster County. So if you can imagine Lancaster County and picture an area about twice that size, that's the tribe of Judah. And in this ancient time, the author of Joshua, Joshua, he he lists the 114 important cities in the tribe of Judah. But Bethlehem doesn't make the list. Bethlehem gets included namelessly in this phrase at the end of the cities that says, and there were other villages. These cities and their villages. Well, Bethlehem's tucked into the and their villages. It's tiny. It's insignificant. And yet from this village is going to come forth God's ruler for Israel. And that's how God works, isn't it? His son, the promised ruler of Israel, is born in an insignificant city. In fact, in a stable, announced to shepherds, the poor parents of his, Mary and Joseph. It's just the opposite of anything royal at every single level. And that, of course, is part of what God is demonstrating. When God became man in the person of Jesus, when God came to live among men, he did not come in power to demand to be worshipped, as we might expect a God to do. He didn't come to demand that we clean up our lives and start living to please him better. He didn't come and say, this is what I expect, now let's shape up. No, when God came, he came to live like the poorest of us, to give himself up, to sacrifice himself, to take our sin on himself, and to pay for our sins so that we could have forgiveness from God and to be restored to God, to have hope of eternal life with him. And God gave us the first hints of what he was planning to do by sending his son to Bethlehem. And yet, we have to look at the other side as well, because the fact that God sent his son to Bethlehem was also a clue that this baby, though coming from an insignificant place, would actually be quite significant. 
Because even though Bethlehem was just included with the and the villages in Joshua, it is mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. The last time Bethlehem was mentioned, it was mentioned as the home and the birthplace of King David. Now, if you remember, God had chosen King David to be the king over his people. And then God promised, he promised to David that one day a king would rise from his descendants who would rule over Israel forever. Here we have the first clue that this ruler may be the one God had promised to David. But we get more clues in this passage, more clues that this is not going to just be any old birth. When Micah adds in verse 2 that this ruler's birth is coming from of old, from of ancient days. This is a birth that has been promised for hundreds of years. This baby will be one who comes to fulfill promises that God had been making from ancient days. In fact, if you think back what you might know from God's word, you will remember that God had promised. He had promised to Adam and Eve in the face of their sin and death that one day he would send a seed of the woman who would rescue his people. You may remember that God promised to Abraham that Abraham would have a seed who would bring blessing to the whole earth. And as we've mentioned, he promised to David a descendant who would remain on his throne forever. And so Micah says, this baby, his coming forth will be from of old, from ancient days, as the one who fulfills the things I've been telling you for centuries. And then, of course, we get the final clue in verse 3. In verse 3, we read that when she who is in labor gives birth, the rest of this baby's brothers shall return to the people of Israel. We might not recognize it, but that's the final piece to this puzzle. Because the great hope of the Messiah, the promised Savior that God had been saying he would send to Israel, was that he would bring back the scattered people of God. He would restore God's people to himself. And so when Micah 3 mentions that the rest of his brothers will return at his birth, Micah is arguing that this repentance, that this turning, that this regathering of God's people, the arrival of hope for God's people, will happen when this baby is born in Bethlehem. Well, if this is true, no wonder this birth in Bethlehem has continued to spark rejoicing and celebration and remembering and even worship for thousands of years all around the world. This baby had been promised from of old. This birth was God's king. This was the ruler for God's people come at last. This birth was the beginning of God gathering people back to himself, forgiving them and giving them hope of eternal life. But maybe you say, well, I can see how this would be hope for Israel, but I don't really see how this promise has to do with me. Maybe you say, I'm not really scattered over the world. I don't really need to be regathered. I don't feel particularly in need of a baby born on the other side of the world in a tiny unnamed village 2,000 years ago. Why should I still be celebrating or worshiping at this birth? Well, I think to start with, we can note the fact that this birth of Jesus happened exactly as it was promised 700 years before. Micah made this prophecy in the 8th century BC. 
And things turned out exactly like he said with the baby born in Bethlehem, demonstrating God's faithfulness to keep his promises and showing us how trustworthy God and his word are. And if we're talking about God's promises and we're thinking about how trustworthy God's word is, maybe we could remember one of the other promises that God made in Isaiah chapter 49, right around this same time in history. He said this, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See, this baby did indeed restore Jesus' brothers. He did indeed raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel, but he's also a light for all the nations. The good news of God's salvation goes to the end of the earth so that you and I who are living in Lancaster County or visiting Lancaster County or have moved to Lancaster County in 2019 can also come to this baby Jesus and find light and hope and salvation and restoration, a renewed promise of eternal life forever. If God was faithful to fulfill his one promise over 700 years, he's also faithful to fulfill the other. But in case any of us are still unconvinced that this baby is worthy of never-ending celebration and worship, let's take the remaining time that we have to look at verses 4 and 5 and notice, secondly, the hope that comes from this birth. These are glorious verses. Look again, verses 4 and 5. We're told, This baby shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And so they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is a glorious promise. And it all starts with the announcement that this baby will shepherd his people. Now I realize that most of us probably don't have a lot of personal interaction with shepherds on a daily basis. My only experience with shepherds was with a few rather carefree and irresponsible-looking 12- or 13-year-olds who were sauntering through the fields of Cappadocia, Turkey, when I was there on a college trip, and they definitely didn't look like a paradigm of care and protection. They looked more like they were busy throwing rocks at grass, and if something came to steal a sheep, they might not even notice. But in the Bible, to shepherd people means to care for them to provide them, to lead them, to protect them, to save them. In fact, in the ancient world, kings were often referred to as shepherds of this people. And so here in Micah, this baby, this ruler who would be born in Bethlehem, we're told that he would be able to perfectly care for, provide for, lead, save, and protect his people because he would shepherd his flock, not in his own strength, but in the strength of of the Lord his God. It turns out, actually, that when Micah uses the image of shepherds and says that this ruler would shepherd his people, he's using an image the Bible often used to communicate to us what God's salvation in Jesus would be like. In Ezekiel, another prophet, God promised this. He says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. 
as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. This is the shepherd that God would send. And so in the midst of their poverty and oppression, ruled by one foreign nation after another, God's people had waited eagerly across the centuries for God's Messiah to show up and strengthen in majesty, to gather them, to heal them, to strengthen them, to save them. And so given this anticipation and this hope, you can imagine how Jesus' words might ring in the ears of Israel when he announced in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is the Jesus that we have been reading about. This is the ruler who would be born in Bethlehem. This is the shepherd that God sends to his people. 700 years of waiting were over and we have to appreciate the beautiful irony that the first ones who got to hear that this Jesus was born were shepherds. And little did they know, perhaps, that these shepherds hurried to the stable in Bethlehem to see the shepherd who would shepherd in the strength and the majesty of the Lord. And now you and I can begin to see the relevance of this baby Jesus for you and I today. Is any one of us weak? Is any one of us struggling? Does any one of us know our guilt that we have wandered? Does any of us feel lost? Are any of us in need in the face of our anxieties of life of strong security? Can any of us, any of us feel that we need a hope that cannot be shaken by anything that could hit us in life? If so, this is what this baby Jesus, this ruler of Israel, came to do. Jesus, the God-man, is your shepherd. You can dwell secure, for he is great to the ends of the earth. In fact, it is just his strength, just the security we find in his majesty and greatness that makes the last words of this passage ring so true. And he shall be their peace. He can be your shepherd if you will put your trust in him. In fact, these words, that he shall be their peace, these are the very words that the angels proclaimed to Bethlehem that night, that Christmas night, isn't it? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Once again, exactly what God promised 700 years before. Maybe some of us feel like we long for peace, but we're not even 100% sure what it would feel like to have the security of perfect peace. It's a longing of our hearts. We know that. In 2003, I took a, a trip in college to Portland, Oregon. The U.S. was two years into the Iraqi war 
at that point, as many of you will remember. And on the square of downtown Portland was a long line of men and women beating drums, holding up signs, and marching, urging peace. Peace. But peace, we have found out, does not come from stopping a particular foreign war. Nor does peace come from all the many different ways you and I strive for peace and security in our daily lives. We try to find peace and security through big enough 401ks, home security systems, through background checks, living in the right neighborhood, vacations and time to relax, to get away from the stress of our daily routine. Netflix. We could put whatever you want in there, ways that we would try to find some peace and security. And yet the anxieties of life are too big for any of these earthly attempts. And we've all discovered over and over again that none of them are successful. Because real peace comes from the assurance that someone sufficiently strong enough and capable enough has things under control. Real peace comes from the assurance that someone with the strength and the majesty to do so well is taking care of us. Real peace comes when God himself becomes man, takes the punishment that we deserve from the sins that we know in our consciences would separate us from God, and he restores us through faith to relationship with him, so that with the strength and the majesty of the Lord of all the earth, this one would lead us and care for us and guide us and protect us and save us such that no one can snatch us from his hands. That is true security and peace. And it's offered to you and it's offered to me by this God become baby whom we celebrate tonight. Now, maybe to some of you, as we come to a close tonight, say this sounds so good, but maybe it seems empty. You know, just in this week alone, our church community is, is grieving deeply with the Miller family at the sudden death of their daughter. Three families are grieving the unexpected passing away of their father and grandfather. I learned of a very difficult thing in our refugee community this week. There are many members in our church facing cancer. And that, of course, doesn't even include many others facing months of unemployment those facing another anniversary of the loss of a loved one, facing pressures and stress at work and school. And so we're tempted to ask, okay, God, these are nice promises, but how can God be a good shepherd when these things happen in our lives? But actually, this is exactly the point. In the face of the griefs and the anxieties and the pains of this life, which is still marred by the brokenness of sin and death, In the face of those griefs and pains, we have a good shepherd who promises that he knows us by name and is thoroughly aware of every one of these things that is happening in our lives. That he is walking with us even into the valley of the shadow of death. He promises too that he lays down his life for his sheep and because he's laid down his life for his sheep, now none of his sheep can be taken from his father's hand. Not even death itself can rob us or pull us from the strength of the grasp of our Savior. It is because this baby from Bethlehem died and rose again and conquered death and offers life in his presence forever that those who trust him 
It's because of this that those who trust him can be as secure and at peace if we trust and follow him. So here we have it on this Christmas Eve. Security and peace. Not because difficulty will cease to happen, but because in this broken world, difficulty and loss will come until that day when Jesus appears again. But while we walk in this world, He is a great Savior. He is by our side, guaranteeing that not even death can rob us of our hope. And so we have to ask, do you know this Jesus? Do you know Him? If you have not found security and peace that come with salvation in the name of Jesus, would you come to Him tonight? And if you do know Jesus, and this is the thousandth time that you've heard this good news of Jesus again, then would you, would you take delight tonight by letting your mind just slowly go over again what this good news of Christmas is? Will you rehearse in your mind, will you rejoice in your mind again to hear this good news proclaimed that in a stable in Bethlehem Ephrathah, a ruler has been born whose coming forth is from of old, who stands in shepherds, you and me, all who trust in him, in the strength and the majesty of the God of heaven and earth, who is great to the ends of the earth, so that we may dwell secure in the peace that he alone can bring. That is the joy of Christmas. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Oh God, Christmas night, it comes every year. And we're always in danger of letting the celebration be just that, another annual celebration. But I pray that tonight we would again hear the promise of your word, the promise of this baby Jesus, and all that he is and comes to bring, security and peace and hope and eternal life for all who will put their trust in him. Thank you, Lord. May that be the joy of our hearts tonight, tomorrow, and forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.